I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 16th, 2015. Coming up, we talk to Sarah McQuaid, a postdoc at CU Boulder. She helped found a group called CU Cafe. It helps to open more dialogues about diversity and inclusion in STEM fields. Also, we're joined by science writer Julie Raymeyer, who will tell us about the intuitive level of mathematics and science and how useful that can be when the hard science doesn't give us clear answers. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Nutritionists have suggested for many years that fish oil supplements, rich in omega-3 fatty acids, and having more fish for dinner, help reduce your risk of heart disease. But eating more fish means, well, more fish eating. Indeed, through the 20th century, fish stocks declined dramatically. That trend continues with many fish species. But now in the 21st century, thanks to protection and monitoring, some species, for example cod, have started to rebound. However, new research by scientists at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute shows that climate change throws a monkey wrench into that recovery. Over the past decade, sea surface temperatures in the Gulf of Maine increased faster than 99% of the rest of the oceans worldwide. The warming, which was related to a northward shift in the Gulf Stream and other ocean currents, resulted in increased mortality in the region's Atlantic cod. The lower population was then overfished because the quotas were not modified, and that led to a further decline. Recovery of the species, and probably others, depends on future management, which could be based on assessments of temperature increases, and maybe less fish eating. The study was published in the journal Science last week. If you live in Boulder, you are familiar with the Chinook winds, which have gusts of 160 kilometers per hour or more. Well, if you are living on exoplanet HD 189733b, that would be a light breeze. That's because astronomers have measured winds on that distant planet to be more than 7,200 kilometers per hour. That's two kilometers per second. This is the first time that a weather system on a planet outside of Earth's solar system has been directly measured and mapped. So how exactly do you measure the wind on a planet circling around another star, a planet so distant that you can't actually take a picture of it? The astronomers from the University of Warwick who published these results in the Astrophysical Journal explain that the speeds of the winds on the distant planet were measured using high-resolution spectroscopy of the sodium absorption featured in its atmosphere. As part of the planet's atmosphere moves towards or away from the Earth, the Doppler effect changes the wavelength of that sodium line. But how can you tell what's part of the planet's atmosphere? What part of the planet's atmosphere you're measuring? Well, the planet orbits around the star in such a way that from our point of view, it passes in front of the star during every orbit. When the planet moves in front of the star, the relative amount of light blocked by different parts of the atmosphere changes. So by watching the wavelength of the sodium line change, the astronomers can measure the velocities on opposite sides of the planet independently. The research plan is to develop the technique further so they will be able to study wind flows in increasing detail and make weather maps of other planets. On the science calendar this week on Our Planet, 
This Thursday evening, the Denver Café Scientifique will have a discussion about cargo cult science. The term was coined by physicist Richard Feynman to illustrate the dangers of those who adopt the trappings of science without understanding the fundamental nature of the enterprise. The risk of self-delusion, he argued, was greatest when this form without function was followed mindlessly by scientists, and he gave this warning. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. The presentation and discussion will be led by linguist and cognitive anthropologist Stephen Chrysomalis from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. In his talk, Dr. Chrysomalis will use linguistic evidence to show how non-specialists can think critically about pseudoscientific ideas in anthropology and why it's important to care about anthropological junk science in the media. The Café Sai will be this Thursday, November 19th at 7.30 at the Brooklyn's Restaurant and Bar at 901 Aurora Parkway in Denver. That's directly across from the parkway from the Aurora campus and next to the Pepsi Center. The talk will be upstairs and food and drink available throughout the evening. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. Last week, CU Boulder hosted a summit on diversity and inclusion. I attended a panel facilitated by a group called CU Cafe on campus. CU Cafe was the group was started by a collection of graduate students and postdocs in STEM fields who felt that the space did not exist to have dialogues on issues of race, sexuality, gender, and other and supporting underrepresented scholars. Sarah McQuaid is a postdoc in the BioFrontiers program in CU and is one of the organizers and facilitators of CU Cafe. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. <laughs> so, Sarah, last week, the talk at the Diversity and Summit, Diversity and Inclusion Summit, uh, was facilitated by CU Cafe and revolved around the concept of tolerance versus acceptance. Now, what was the motivation between choosing that topic to talk about? So it sort of relates back to the whole reason why we formed CU Cafe in the first place. Um, basically, all of the grad students and postdocs involved in forming this uh, program felt that we all sort of lacked a sense of belonging on campus. And then we found an article talking about GBLT members feeling the difference between tolerance and acceptance, and we thought maybe we should explore this on the CU campus. Yeah, what I found really interesting uh, about that conversation was that people were talking about acceptance and tolerance of those words that it, it was really the starting point to start to, to find some framework, to find some definition, and that there's a huge spectrum that we can apply those words to that, you know, maybe tolerance has this aspect of, of, uh, we, it, we have to do it, but we may not want to do it. What other sort of steps came up in that, in that discussion? So the thing that I found the most interesting was that everybody had a bunch of definitions for the word tolerance, meaning basically not this. And I think what I really liked about it was my definition of tolerance of uh, people acknowledge you, but they don't invite you to the party that everyone else is going to. So you're there, we see you, but sorry, you're not invited. And then we spent a lot of time being like, okay, so if that's tolerance, what does acceptance mean? And acceptance to me would be 
then you are invited to the party. And then people on the panel kind of exploded with this. And they went on about, okay, well, maybe you're invited to the party and you're invited to dance. Or people are happy that you're at the party. And it was funny because it was really hard for people to figure out, okay, what what would acceptance look like? And what would an accepting campus look like specifically? Yeah, it it seemed like that it was a really hard issue to put a specific label on. Like, what is this that we're experiencing and how can we describe it? And through through this space, a lot of people came up and were telling anecdotal stories about their own experience of acceptance or tolerance. And I'm curious for you as a woman of color and a grad student on campus and now postdoc, how has your experience of these things been? And specifically in a STEM field. So I definitely feel that I actually don't know what to do if I am accepted. I'm so used to just being that other girl in the corner over there that to me, the idea of being accepted is so weird. I I feel like I must have done something to make you accept me. I I don't understand that you could just like me for me. Um, And that sort of plays true in being a graduate student and now a postdoc on CU's campus. I felt very often that I was sort of that girl in the corner over there, not involved in everybody else's life events, not really accepted at all. Like, I don't really belong here. I'm sort of here to do science. Yeah. And there are also stories uh, about people who felt that they weren't approached or they weren't included because they were seen as having their own thing going on and that there was this sort of barrier between communities and people didn't really know whose responsibility was it to engage in that conversation or engage in that dialogue. And, and I think specifically in STEM fields that they can be very insulated, insular communities and already some difficulty with, with creating social dialogues. And it was really amazing that this space was provided to have these conversations. So tell me a little bit more about CU Cafe. When, when did that get started and what are you guys doing? So CU Cafe was started uh, uh, sometime in 2014. Uh, a few uh, African-American students and postdocs started meeting for coffee uh, every couple months. And then we realized that we all had these shared feelings of just not quite belonging on campus. Nothing like that we could put a name on that was hurtful. We just didn't really feel like we fit in. Um, and we, were, we we realized that we all shared these feelings and we thought maybe we should open this up to other people, uh, different ethnicities, uh, gender, um, et cetera. And the sort of started, we're like, okay, we all have this feeling, let's do something about it. And so we met with, uh, Mike Summers from UMBC and we said, Hey, we have these feelings. We are all feeling kind of left out and isolated on this campus and we want to do something about it. We want to change the campus. What should we do? And he suggested that we start a seminar series where we invite people uh, who are different ethnicities, et cetera, from outside of CU to come and give a uh, talk about their research and also to interact with students of color on campus to sort of create this sense of belonging and also networking opportunities. So because of that, we started CU Cafe, which is a seminar series. Uh, We have four confirmed speakers for this year. We invite them to come out. They give two talks, um, 
a formal talk about the research and then some informal layperson talk. It can be a career talk, but doesn't have to be. Um, and then also this speaker comes, they bring a mentee, so a student postdoc or uh, like graduate student, I guess, or undergrad. And they are invited to come out too and get a tour of CU and sort of further increase networking capabilities, but also sort of give CU the chance to recruit new people to come to CU. So do you have, uh, what's the next event that's happening? Is there something on the calendar? Yeah, so my speaker's coming <laughs> December 1st. Her name is Anna Scott. It's going to be great. She studies cell division, and her big thing is about science as art. Science is beautiful. Why can't we talk about that? And so she's going to have a mentorship career talk type thing called Too Creative for Science at noon in Porter B121 um, on main campus. And then her actual seminar will be at four um, in the new BioFrontiers building. Terrific. So that's Sarah McQuaid. She's a postdoc at the University of Colorado and part of the group CU Cafe. If you want to find out more information, you can check out their website at cucafeseminar.wordpress.com. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. Our second guest today is a science writer who has navigated the world both as a graduate student in mathematics and as a patient of a chronic illness searching for answers. Julie Raymeyer has written articles on math and science for the New York Times, Discover Magazine, and Wired. But that all came to a screeching halt when she fell incredibly ill with chronic fatigue syndrome. Through her journey to get healthy again, she used both her science and journalism background to really dig deep into the research of chronic fatigue syndrome. But what's come up for her is that there's still some pretty big holes in our scientific understanding. So, Julie, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So, first I want to rewind a little bit to your experience as a grad student in math. As I understand it, you came in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, very lo in love with math, and, and you were a student at MIT, but got kind of disenchanted. What, what happened at, at MIT? I had a pretty rough time as a graduate student. I felt like I just couldn't connect. And in retrospect, I think a lot of the problem was that my advisor was looking for students who reminded him of himself, and I didn't qualify. <laughs> So I, I just couldn't find any kind of human connection. And as a graduate student, you're entering this kind of foreign world anyway and trying to find your way around. And that human connection is kind of the oxygen you breathe. Um, it's very, very hard to get by without it. And I, I find really similar connection between your story and some of the stuff that Sarah was talking about that there wasn't really that, that open space to explore and, and to be creative and to make mistakes sometimes and be nurtured in that sort of environment. And you, I've also heard you speak about how in, in math, 
there's there's this natural elegance and this natural space that we want to explore and look look more deeply in. You to tell us more about your your vision of math and the, the aspects of how you like to explore that. Yeah, math is really interesting because on one level it's it's absolutely logical. You're trying to make proofs where every you can justify every single step with logical connections, but human brains don't actually reason that way. We can do it, but it's a lot of work and it's not the way we actually figure things out. So when you're doing mathematics, when you're trying to figure something out, you're thinking on this completely different level. You're thinking in terms of patterns and meaning, and it's this intuitive level where you're trying to make connections on the basis of other things you've seen. And once you've figured out what you think is true or the broad outlines of how you think the argument's going to work, then you start thinking in this very strictly logical way. But there's this fascinating process of when you're learning to do math, on the one hand, you're learning to make careful arguments, but on the other hand, you're also doing what mathematicians describe as training your intuition. You're learning just kind of generally how things work so that you can figure out what's true or what should be true or how you think things work or or make surprising connections. And my understanding of that is, you know, some you have to do the, the grunt work, the crunchy bar- parts of, of, of crunching the equations, but the more you do so, you start to absorb some of the the deeper meaning of those tools and it really is able to permeate into your consciousness in a way that you can apply it in a different context and know when to bring those tools into the right spaces. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think part of learning to do math, and this is as true when you're a six-year-old learning addition as it is if you're a research mathematician, is that you're you're learning what you're going for as you do that hard, crunchy work. You're learning what it feels like to understand something. So as you're going through the details of something and, and seeing how all of it connects, I mean, you know, as a as a grade school student, it's like as you're actually learning how to multiply two numbers and where you, how you write it down and what you keep track of and all of that really nitty-gritty stuff so that you can calculate the answer. Sure, you want to get the right answer, but that's not actually what's important. What's important is getting that feeling of understanding of, oh, this is what I'm doing as I do this algorithm. This is why this algorithm is helpful. And that feeling of understanding is the real core of it, not that it's actually the case that 3 times 5 is 15. And again... Even though mathematicians may speak of, oh, you, you want to train your intuition to, to really understand some of these aspects, it's if, from what I hear, it, that's not something that's really nourished or spoken about in an, in an open conversation. And similarly to to what Sarah was talking about, the 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 spaces aren't available to have those dialogues to get a little deeper, or deeper to get a little bit more vulnerable in those spaces. But I want to f- flash flash forward now. Uh, to to a few years later, when now you're you've become very ill, you've become almost inca- incapacitatingly ill and with chronic fatigue syndrome, and being 
a scientist, being a mathematician, you go looking for the research. What's out there? What are the answers? What do you find? Very little. Very little indeed. The problem with chronic fatigue syndrome is that we haven't made an investment in the research. There are a million Americans sick with chronic fatigue syndrome, and we spend the NIH spends five to six million dollars a year on chronic fatigue syndrome research. By contrast, there are about the same number of people who are HIV positive in the U.S., and we spend three billion dollars a year on HIV research. So it's not really surprising that. Chronic fatigue syndrome research is not as developed as AIDS research. So what 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 do you have to do then? You know, you're stuck between this rock and a hard place where you need to find solutions. You want to get yourself healthy, but there's not a lot of scientific research to back it back up how to move forward. So what I ended up doing was talking to fellow patients and tracking down what it was that seemed to work for fellow patients, and I came across a theory that I thought was probably crazy uh, that for some patients at least that chronic fatigue syndrome can be caused by hypersensitivity to mold and and I ended up you know there are there are a million crazy theories out there you can pursue crazy theory after crazy theory um, and really it was a kind of intuitive thing that guided me to pursue that particular crazy theory rather than some other crazy theory. So ultimately, you have to, you had to kind of, with the small bits of information that are out there, again, return to this balance of putting your analytical skills and the intuitive skills to work together and to, to sort out what information is valuable and what's not. So you've recently just published an article in uh, Slate magazine scrutinizing one of the largest studies on CFS. What were some of the results of that study and why were they so hard to swallow? Yeah, so this study first came out in 2011, and the, which was also when I was at my very, very sickest, lying in bed too weak to sit up. And so I was reading the news on my cell phone and came across a headline about this study, and the study claimed that cognitive behavioral therapy, so a type of psychotherapy, and exercise are effective treatments for chronic fatigue syndrome, which was pretty astonishing to me. I'd had plenty of psychotherapy. It had helped me um, not lose my mind while I lost my health, but it certainly did not make me any healthier. And exercise is actually quite uh, tricky and dangerous for chronic fatigue syndrome patients. It can make them very much sicker. And I had put a lot of effort into learning how to do it safely, but it had, again, not offered any way out of the illness. And so I was astonished. And and the research was, uh, it was a very large study, $8 million, 641 patients, which is the biggest treatment trial in CFS history, published in The Lancet, headlines around the world, very influential, the CDC uh, recommendations are based on it, the Mayo Clinic, British National Health Service. And so as a science writer, I was just astonished. And there was this question of what's going on here? You know, how could this be that we get this incredibly sort of shocking finding? Um, what's going on with this research? Well, it turns out that the research is very, very, very flawed. And uh, it took a long time for that to kind of come out into the public, but it finally has, and things are changing. So 
your your article is entitled Hope for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. So do you feel that there's more hope out there now? I do. The NIH is finally getting serious about studying this illness, and the problems with this particular study are coming to light in a big way, and it feels like there have been a lot of changes on a lot of levels, and the illness has finally begun to be taken seriously. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Julie Raymeyer, science writer and author of a recent article, Hope for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. You can find the article on Slate's website or a link to it on our blog later today. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Kendra Kruger. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Laura Muvella. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcasts through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Susan Moran.